to do the PowerPoint. She, uh, this morning, had to come in and take care of that. And I'm thankful for Carrie being able to step in and do that. I'd also like to welcome my sister and her husband, my brother-in-law, who are joining us today. I was visiting June Kaufman this week, and I mentioned that my sister was going to be visiting this weekend. And he said, how many siblings do you have? I said, it's just me and her. And June said, you got gypped. And I thought, that's true in more ways than one. No. I'm very happy to have my sister with us. June really did say that. He was in good spirits. Please keep praying for him. He's still at Heritage in Hubston, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, again, he was in good spirits when I saw him uh, this past week. But... Again, please keep praying for him and for Ruby. Uh, We'll be in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 12. Decided to cut the passage a little bit shorter than what the bulletin says. We'll we'll cut it off in verse uh, 43. Uh, There's so much in this section. And uh, excited to be back in John after a great week we had last Sunday on Easter. So John chapter 12, verses 20 through 43. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and that it points us to life, that it points us to the glory of Christ. Lord, we continue to pray for June Kaufman as he is recuperating, Lord, and we're thankful that he is getting better, but just want to pray every day for him to be getting a little bit better than the day before. Lord, we also pray for Gene Ryder, who continues to recuperate and to recover as well. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. Lord, may we be pointed to eternal truths about you. May we be encouraged and our hope strengthened in the promise of your gospel. And may we be pointed to our Lord Jesus, who died and rose so that we can have salvation through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is a global religion, and its influences are global. Christianity is influenced by Judaism, most obviously. It came out of the Middle East within the Roman world. The the early church grew in the Middle East, in Rome, eventually into Europe, parts of North Africa. It would go on over the centuries to become a dominating force in Europe. Missions efforts brought the gospel to the Americas in the age of exploration. In the past century, Christianity has exploded in Asia and Africa, so much so that today most of the world's Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere. And that cultural flexibility compared to other religions of the world, is something that is largely unique to Christianity. This week I looked up the top ten countries with the largest Christian populations, not based on percentage, but just the total population of citizens in a nation who are Christians. First is the United States, North America, Brazil, South America, Mexico, in North America, the Philippines, Asia, Ethiopia, in Africa, Nigeria, also in Africa, Russia, Europe, Congo, Africa, Italy, in Europe, and Germany, in Europe. It is a global faith. Now, let's consider briefly the world's other major faiths. Islam is largely concentrated across northern Africa, into the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Hinduism has over 1.2 billion adherents worldwide, but more than a billion of them live in India alone. More than half of the world's Buddhist population lives in either China or Thailand. But the gospel is everywhere. And that's an important theme in our passage this morning in John chapter 12. All the gospel writers get at the idea of the worldwide mission of Christ in their own various ways. 
For instance, last week, when we were in the resurrection passage, Matthew chapter 28, the gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus giving the Great Commission, where he says in chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But at the beginning of that commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're continuing this morning in the Gospel of John. And we also see that idea. That the gospel is for the world. There's a lot in this section that we just read. It's a really dense and rich section theologically. This section makes several allusions to the opening prologue of John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. And part of that is the structure of John's gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 are, again, an opening prologue. And then from the chapter 1, 19, all the way until the end of chapter 12, that's one major section of John's gospel, which scholars oftentimes refer to as the book of signs. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins a section called the book of glory. And so in these verses and in next week's passage, These are the concluding verses of the major section of John's gospel called the book of signs, where we see his earthly miraculous ministry. And so it shouldn't be a shock that at the end of the book of signs, as his ministry is winding down, it is in that context that he has a message that it is the gospel which is for the whole world. And we see that in this passage And we'll have four main ideas that we talk about this morning in this section. The first of which is that the gospel is worldwide. So beginning in verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. All throughout this gospel, Jesus has been speaking to Jewish audiences. The only real exception I can think of is in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, but they were still Jewish. But here in his final appearance, we see a Greek audience. And what the Greeks in this passage represent is the non-Jewish world. They're a symbol of the gospel being for the whole world. Verses 21 and 22. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the Greeks asked to see Philip, one of the apostles. We don't know exactly why it's Philip that they seek out. It is noteworthy that the name Philip is a Greek name. The passage mentions that Philip is from Bethsaida, which is in northern Galilee a region where you actually do have more of an intermingling between Jews and Gentiles. So perhaps that's the reason, but we don't know for sure. But they go to Philip and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. It is the time of Passover. We don't know if these Greeks had converted to Judaism. It's possible. They might have had some sort of affinity towards Judaism but perhaps hadn't 
totally committed to following that way of life. We do know from ancient secular historians that you would have non-Jews sometimes go into Jerusalem for Passover. Regardless, they go and they seek out Jesus. And this will be contrasted later in the passage by the unbelief of many of the Jewish people to whom Jesus had been ministering. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus gives a brief monologue. As we've seen elsewhere in this gospel, Jesus' words here are not in response to a specific question he's been asked. It's significant that after the Greeks are brought to Jesus, that that is the time when Jesus says the hour has come for him to be glorified. Because all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been making reference to his hour. And it refers to the hour of his glorification. The hour of his death. Going back to chapter 2, where Jesus is at the wedding feast, and Mary tells Jesus that they've run out of wine. Once again, in that section, Jesus gives a response that doesn't seem to really have anything to do with the concern that's brought before him. John 2, 4, Jesus says, What does this have to do with me? Referring to the wine. My hour has not yet come. Chapters 4 and 5, Jesus makes several references to his hour. That is coming. And he connects it to various events which will happen in connection to his death and resurrection. When Jesus does talk to the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4.23, Jesus says, The hour is coming. It is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. John 5.25, Jesus says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In chapters 7 and 8, you have two run-ins with the Pharisees where they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were ultimately unable. Why? John tells us it was because Jesus' hour had not yet come. But here in chapter 12, At the time of Passover, in Jerusalem, after the Greeks came to seek Jesus, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when we think of the crucifixion and Jesus going to the cross, I think we oftentimes have a negative view of that. Jesus suffers. He faces injustice. He's killed. And I think that idea is more prominent in the other Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, it looks at the cross from a different lens. Because in the Gospel of John, when it talks about his hour, it is the hour for him to be glorified. Another example from John's Gospel that attaches the idea of the cross to glory. And I won't get into all the references with this. But several times in John's Gospel, Jesus talks about being lifted up. And that carries a double meaning. Lifted up in terms of literally being hoisted up on the cross, 
but also the sense of being lifted up in glory and lifted up at his ultimate exaltation. In John's gospel, the cross is not primarily a place of humiliation, but it is his place of greatest exaltation and glorification. Jesus continues speaking, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He gives an agricultural metaphor. Certainly, he is referring to his own death when he talks of a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying. Jesus is obviously the seed which dies. But for what purpose? It's so that a harvest can ensue. And what is that harvest? The harvest is the church. And the metaphor also carries in the idea that a grain of wheat produces a harvest of wheat. And the death of Christ produces a harvest of the church, which is people who are called to live Christ-like lives in the world. And that segues into our second idea, which is the subject of discipleship, verses 25 and 26. Jesus continues speaking and says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus is talking of what it means to follow him. In the previous verse, Jesus is the grain of wheat who gives himself over in order that the harvest might be reaped. That he gives himself up for the world. And his people are called as a result to give themselves over to Christ. But what does it mean when he says to hate your life? It means that we don't view our life as if it's the end-all, be-all. That we have a heavenly citizenship. That this world is not our ultimate home. That this life is not the pinnacle of our existence. C.S. Lewis famously said, Aim at heaven, and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Jesus talks of total commitment in being a disciple, which is familiar language that he uses in other places in the Gospels, such as Matthew 10, verses 38 and 39, where Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we try to make this life all that there is, it can be so easy to be focused on ourselves primarily and not on Christ. I read a book a couple years ago by Francis Chan called Letters to the Church. Chan was a popular pastor in California. And one thing I respect about Chan is that while his church was at its height, 
He actually stepped away from it, not because of any scandal or anything like that, but because he didn't want the church to be all about him. And so he stepped away. But he's traveled and spoken all over the world. In his book, Chan has a pretty cynical view of the American church. He talks about the tremendous faith that he's seen from Christians in other parts of the world. I think that the thing that Chan doesn't really acknowledge in his book is that part of the reason why that happens is because of the freedom that we have in America. Because I have no doubt that there are Christians in some parts of the world where everyone in that church is very serious and devoted to their faith. Because by virtue of being in that church, they're taking real risks either to their lives or their livelihoods. There are parts of the world where it's a real sacrifice to be a Christian. Now, the Bible does call us to discipleship. And the language Jesus uses for that is always very intense. He talks about dying to self, taking up your cross. He doesn't say, yeah, you can be a disciple whenever you get around to it. No, total commitment to Christ. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the freedom that we have in American Christianity is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's great that we are free to worship the Lord. That is a blessing. But the challenge is that it also breeds a watered-down cultural Christianity that often teaches moralism without devotion. We like Jesus as the Savior, but we often overlook Jesus as the Lord, the Lord of our lives. And he's the Lord who calls us to total devotion to him. I'm sure I've said this before, but the reason why he calls us to follow him with such earnestness, such intensity, is not a punishment. It's a blessing. Because it calls us to living a life where we're following the one true source of life. It's meant to call us to living a life to following Jesus who is perfectly righteous. It's meant to follow Jesus who lived a life of joy, who is the ultimate source of truth and wisdom. That living his way is the best way to live life. We come to a third point. The glorification of the Son. Verses 27, 28. Jesus talks again about the glorification through the cross. We've already seen his death talked about in this passage. But here he expands on the idea in this section. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Again, Jesus talks about his hour. 
when Jesus talks about his soul being troubled and asking God to save him from this hour, in some ways it sounds like Jesus' prayer that he gives in the other Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Similar, but different enough to look at those as two different times that Jesus prayed. It is for the purpose of going to the cross that Jesus has come into the world and gone forward in his ministry in the world. Quoting Grant Osborne, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is lifted up into glory. So as Jesus brings glory to God throughout his life, God brings glory to Jesus in his death. After Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, John writes, beginning in the second part of verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There are three places in the Gospels where God is seen speaking directly to Jesus. You see it in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus is baptized, and God says at the beginning of his ministry, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You see it at the Transfiguration. And we see it here in John 12. Osborne points out that in all three instances, when the Gospels record God speaking to Jesus, it is meant for the crowd and for Jesus. That Jesus is glorified through the hour of his death, and the Father is glorified through the Son. And in God confirming that he is glorified through Christ, in that it is also giving further affirmation to Christ's heavenly sent ministry. Verse 29. The crowd then stood there and heard it and said, It had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. So there's confusion from the crowd about exactly what they've heard. But what they heard was ultimately meant for them. We see something similar actually during Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Where people hear this loud sound, but they don't know what it is. It's also interesting to consider that God speaks, and some people hear and think it's thunder. In some ways, I think that's a good metaphor for the world. God does speak. He speaks through his creation. He sovereignly orchestrates history to confirm to his will. He speaks through the situations of our lives. And it can be so easily ignored and explained away. I mentioned in the beginning that there are a lot of similar themes in this section that we find in the opening prologue of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14 talks about the incarnation of Christ where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. But it is through the cross that Jesus most notably displays his glory to the world. Back to chapter 12. 
Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from heaven, will draw all people to myself. So let's tie all of this together. We have Jesus speaking a few days before his crucifixion. It is the hour of his glory. He has addressed a Greek, in other words, non-Jewish audience. Jesus, in talking about his hour, needs to be lifted up to the cross to be maximally glorified. But he must also be lifted up to the cross to draw all people to himself. In other words, it is because Jesus is glorified through going to the cross that the Gentile, non-Jewish world can see the glorious Savior of the world and respond to him in faith through the gospel. John 1.10 talks of the world being inhospitable to Christ despite, he was, despite the fact that he was the creator of the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But it is through his glorification on the cross that the world can know who Jesus is. In chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus speaks of the cross when he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus says all people, he does not mean every individual person that contradicts things that are said throughout the Gospels. But the point is that he will draw all types of people to himself. Jews and Gentiles. That the gospel is for the whole world. That the gospel is for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And the idea gets to Christ's mission in the world. For the gospel to be proclaimed throughout the world. Verse 33 in the passage indicates that Jesus said all this to indicate how he was going to die. Verse 34. The crowd responds to Jesus. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, the question that the crowd asks is not a crazy one. But we again see Jesus giving a response, which isn't really an answer to their question. Jesus is talking about his death. They don't understand how he can die and be glorified. Again, we wouldn't have understood that if we were in the crowd either in the first century. They don't quite understand what Jesus is saying. And it's because they don't understand that Jesus is glorified because of his death. They think that Jesus is somehow saying that he will be glorified in spite of his death. Jesus is saying that it is because he dies that he is glorified. And so instead of specifically answering their question in verse 35, Jesus answers the question that they should have asked. So Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus calls the people to walk in the light. It's fitting. There is urgency to what Jesus is saying. In the final days before his crucifixion. In his commentary on John, Grant Osborne says, this is a perfect way to end his public ministry with the crowds. With a challenge to leave the realm of darkness and enter the realm of light. The light and darkness imagery is also found in the opening prologue where we learn that Jesus is the true light. John chapter 1 verse 5 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In the opening prologue, John talks a lot about the light and darkness metaphor. The light is meant to represent what is righteous and true. And Jesus is calling on the people to walk in his light. Walk in the light while you have it with you. And we come to our fourth point, the gospel and Israel. The rest of verse 36 tells us that Jesus departed after he said this. But all of this again points back to his ministry of miraculous signs. If you've been with us for our study of John, it can be so easy to read these interactions Jesus has, to see the signs that Jesus does, and to ask the question, how did the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin miss this? Verse 37 mentions that there was widespread unbelief. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But why? There's a theological reason for that. The beginning of verse 38 says, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. John will quote two passages from Isaiah. With the point being that the prophets had foretold the unbelief of God's chosen people and their own Messiah. Verse 38 quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1, in the famous suffering servant passage, which asks, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's asking a rhetorical question and saying, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the point that it's making is about the unbelief of Israel. In spite of the fact that they're the ones who were chosen by God, given the law, the land, the prophets, still, unbelief is rampant. And specifically, in the context of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, an important section when considering Christ's death, because it's the suffering servant, the perfect lamb of the slaughter, and Jesus is applying that passage to himself while pointing to Israel's unbelief, He then says in verses 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 6.10. Which is a passage that is also referenced in Romans, in Acts, and in the Gospel of Mark. And the point, again, is the unbelief of God's people, Israel. The people are blind. Their hearts are turned away from God. Their eyes are looking away from the glory of God. The passage talks about God being the one who has blinded the people, who has hardened their hearts. But this is not because the people would have desired the Lord in the first place. It's people who are opposed to God and the Lord giving them over to their own sinfulness. And in the context of our passage in John, the point is that Isaiah pointed to Israel's rejection of the Lord and his anointed one, the Christ. That's not meant categorically of every Jewish person or of every Israelite in Jesus' day, but it is saying that there was widespread unbelief in the true Messiah when he was in the world among God's chosen people. Paul talks a lot about these ideas in the, books, in the book of Romans, especially places like chapter 2, chapters 9 through 11. The ESV study Bible adds the note that what is foretold in Isaiah confirms the ministry of Christ rather than thwarting it. That it pre- prophesied that he would be rejected. And that is why the Greeks in this passage matter. Because again, it is the gospel being for the whole world. And a new people of God being united through the gospel. Even if many in God's chosen nation had rejected the true Messiah. Verses 41 through the end of our passage in 43. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So there were people who believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Throughout the Gospels, we see hostility of the Jewish authorities to Jesus. Again, these verses mention that there are those who believe. But some kept it quiet for fear of the backlash and persecution that they would face. He mentions people being fearful of being kicked out of the synagogue. We see that happen in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a man born blind. So we have these texts that talk about the widespread unbelief among the Jewish people in spite of their religious heritage. Because their heritage and their Jewishness was not what brought salvation. Faith was. And that goes back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. That Abraham believed and that was counted to him as righteousness. But I think that there's a similar danger that we face in America. Our nation has a great religious heritage and history. And we can attach ourselves to that without really believing in Jesus. 
We can fall into the trap of thinking that just because we go to church, then that's a good thing. But what matters is believing in the gospel. And going to church because of that. Not disbelieving and going to church for something we don't believe. We can think that we're good to go because we were baptized. Now that's a good thing also. But baptism does not bring salvation. Faith brings salvation. We can think we're good to go, that we're Christian because we were raised going to the church. That's a great blessing. But where is your eternal faith and hope? Is it in Christ or is it in what you used to do in your past? We're not saved because of what we do. Because we were raised in a church, because we were baptized, or because we like going to church. We are saved by the blood of Christ. And as individuals, as individual people, we need to have a personal faith in Christ and the work that he did to bring salvation. Believing and trusting in him. So we come to the end of this passage. Again, there are many important themes in this section. And again, I realize this is a really deep theological passage. But all of it works together. Because it's a passage which talks about the gospel being for the whole world. And Christ being rejected by Israel. And in contrast to the unbelief of Israel. The passage shows us what true discipleship to Christ looks like. Which is made possible through his death and glorification on the cross. And in the end, it points us to the importance of... Of believing in Christ. And because that is the message for the whole world, we can rejoice. And because it's a message that is meant for the whole world, we should examine our own hearts and minds and what we believe and what we believe about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world who went to the cross to save. A world who rejected him. What we believe matters. And what we believe about Jesus matters most of all. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your son. Lord, we rejoice in the hope and the promise of the gospel. Lord, I pray for all of us here today. That we would trust and believe in that. Lord, that we would have a personal knowledge of the grace of Christ. Lord, and that our lives would be defined in the light of knowing that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.